This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny Lavery. And if I sound a little different this week, it's because I'm wearing glasses. With me in the studio is Rakesh Satyal, the author of the novels Blue Boy and No One Can Pronounce My Name. He is currently an executive editor at the Harper One Group slash Harper Collins. Rakesh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so happy to be here answering questions in glasses for the very first time. So uh, my my advice will be 20% uh, more erudite. I mean, welcome to the club. I've worn them since I was uh, nine years old, and Ooh. I'm still waiting to get smarter, but maybe we'll arrive there at the same time. So I almost took a gamble and tried to say eruditer. And then <laughs> as I was formulating that idea in my head, I was like, I, I don't care if it's a real word or not. I'm just not sure that I would have been able to pull off like the third syllable. So I'm glad I did what I did. This I, It's perfectly fine by me. I will take Eruditor and run with it. Do you remember how you realized? I mean, I guess when you're young, they give you eye exams sometimes at school. But like, do you remember realizing at some point, I think I need glasses? Because that feels like a challenging level of both self-awareness and an awareness of norms and standards for a nine-year-old to have. Well, I will tell you, it's a very specific memory because oddly enough, I was in Australia at the time. I was visiting my uncle, my dad's brother lives in Australia, and we were visiting there for a summer. And I complained to my mother that I was having blurry vision. Now, in retrospect, I understand that this was a very opportune time emotionally to be having these feelings because it was also the very week that I bought my very first cassette tape and it was Kylie Minogue's debut album. No. And the I the double crime was not only not being able to see well, but not being able to see that fabulous album cover well, where she's wearing this very strange, I don't know what kind of hat it would be, but it's a kind of a fascinator meets beret look where her very frizzy hair is coming up over the top of this thing and then falling over the brim of it. Wow. Um, And I think, you know, I was having more than one awakening. So I think my visual awakening mimicked that of my artistic diva inclination awakening yeah, just at like, the same time. I'm going to be a short-sighted homosexual and I That's hope the world is ready. Correct. Correct. That's right. Yeah. I, I definitely remember like, having various moments where I would have trouble seeing something on the board or think, I feel like trees used to look clearer, but not quite having the ability to put it into words in second grade for a while. Like I noticed there was something off before I was able to articulate, like the world ought to be different. And I think that's part of what just sort of interests me is like, how does an eight-year-old know how the world ought to be? It's also, I think a lot of people have this experience, and this happened to me in, in school too, where just you can't see the stuff on the blackboard correctly. Mm-hmm. And then you think it's something to do with your own learning. or But that's something too, is that some now in retrospect, I'm like, was that because their penmanship was bad and I just couldn't read it? Like, what, what, what was I really, what was the real issue at play? But that I think happens to a lot of people when they're in class and they can't just see what their classmates are seeing. Uh, I just want to pause and say, I looked up the cover of Kylie's debut album, which I had not seen in a long time. And my first thought was that she was wearing a bale of hay on her head. Yeah, Uh uh-huh. Before I realized it looks like just like a wig that's been draped over a straw hat. 
Yeah, it's really a look that I wish would come back. I think it's quite becoming. I don't associate this with Kylie at all. (laughs) You know, I think I first encountered her like during the like Moulin Rouge high glamour era. Can't get you out of my head. So she was always in like very shiny pleather outfits or like looking slightly disco-y, impossible princess and disco era. So early Kylie is really... Oh my um, God, I'm having this realization just talking about this, but that also happened... The summer I was in Australia, I bought a Barbie doll when we were at the Mega Mall there. This is Mega Mall in Brisbane, Australia that had a roller coaster at the top of it. It was called Tops at the Myers Center. And the, the Barbie doll... you're like, just yeah, in case you want to go, yes, here's in, what it's in called. Case you want, in case people are fat checking. So there was a... The Barbie doll I bought had a... Like, it's weird. It had like a pole coming out of its head where you could style her hair around it and then put it down as if it were a hair pin or something keeping it in place. But she also, this idea of piling your hair on top of your head, she also resembled Kylie. This was the late 80s, by the way. This was like 88, 89. So just strange. I never really thought about this before, that this was all happening at the same time. So maybe it was just as well that I couldn't see things clearly because there was strange a lot going things on. were afoot. Yes, yes. There was a lot going on at the time. Well, this is all really, you know, important stuff to to just bear in mind. And I feel like actually this really does, like we're talking about like, uh, early like gay fixation on divas, which I think really is going to set the tone because our first question is about like somebody trying to gently extricate themselves from being enmeshed with their mother. Yep. And so really, I think Kylie was the, the best thing that we could have begun talking about. <laughs> That's correct. And now we get to try to find out um, how or if it is possible for a person to uh, gently remove herself from her mother's squeezing embrace. Yeah. So the subject is mom's best friend. My parents moved away after I graduated college about eight years ago. My mom didn't want to go, but said that it was time for her to compromise. They live about five hours away from me now, and she continues to have a hard time with the distance. She consoled herself about the move by saying that she'd come visit me once a month and she has stuck to this, but she never asked if that worked for me. I find her visits increasingly difficult. I love her and I'm glad we're close. But between my busy job, the pandemic, and generally growing older, I've become more of an introvert. Her visits include hours of one-on-one conversation, and I find that tiring. I also have limited free time, and I don't always want to dedicate an entire weekend to her each month. But I've never said any of this to her. I know that's the first piece of advice anyone reading this would give. I'm not a fan of confrontation, and I generally haven't said no to my parents very often. My mother cries almost every time that she leaves and insists on scheduling her next visit while she's still here so that she can feel better about saying goodbye. I'm afraid to hurt her, and every time I try to set a subtle boundary, trying to delay her next visit or not texting her back for a day or so, she only clings harder. She had a baby as a teenager that she gave up for adoption, and I know she thinks about this often, and I think it probably affects how we both handle the situation. Another reason I haven't addressed this is because I always thought that this had an end date, and that when they moved back, we'd occasionally get dinner together and I could go back to my own place immediately afterwards. But now she's talking about how nice it would be if we bought houses next door to each other once my parents moved back to my hometown. It's clear I need to say something. How can I make more space for myself while also respecting her experience and upsetting her the least amount possible? I don't want to hurt our relationship, but I think my silence on this issue is already doing so. Well, this is... First of all, I well, I do want me to just jump in because I have a lot to say, but I also please, don't want, yeah, please yeah. jump. So, 
So I think this is such a universal question that people have, which, and it's something I think about a great deal because, you know, just for context, I have two brothers. I have an older brother who's four years older and I have a fraternal twin brother. So, mm-hmm. um, and then I, my, you know, my parents, I'm from Ohio. My, my twin brother and I live here in New York. My older brother lives in LA. So we, we see each other as a family unit, you know, usually around the holidays, but not as often as probably all of us would like. And a truism of the nature of our relationship over the years has been that the way I normally view family relationships is that there's an evolution implicit in that relationship. So the idea that people will change over time and we have the kind of foundation of having grown up as a family together and that's a reference point, but we all become adults and we all shift and change. And I think in the case, for example, of my older brother, I think oftentimes that this is an elder sibling inclination too, I think too, to preserve the family unit as it was and to see everything from that vantage point in the sense that we all return home. And in returning home, we almost return to the selves we were at that point in time. Mm-hmm. I think both of those are incredibly valid ways of seeing family. But from my personal experience, the reason why I think I favor the first is because building evolution into a way that you think about your family and being communicative about that, I think is a very healthy approach, not just to the way we think about family, but we think about any interpersonal relationships that we have. Mm-hmm. So in this case, for example, I, I appreciate that the the writer mentions that they haven't yet mentioned this to their mother. And I think that is kind of admission number one, that I think it's a good thing to admit. It's great that the the writer is thinking about these questions, and it's worth acknowledging that even thinking about them in the first place shows the level of care that's being given to this topic. But I do think being able to begin there and convey to their mother that there is this change happening in being away at school. This is a time of great change, and in fact, they're both going to go through it and beginning the conversation there with it being the nature of how relationships change versus just this one relationship could be very effective, is to think about it in that, to couch it in that larger question that we all go through of just like being through a constant period of evolution. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I I really appreciated this letter because sometimes, often, I think I get letters where I feel like there needs to be a, a very big separation between the letter writer and their mother that's long, long, long overdue and, and probably will will need to require a fair amount of conflict. But this one feels a little bit more like, yes, certainly I understand why the letter writer needs some distance here. You know, it, it's not like their mother has been going out of her way to like make things difficult on purpose or like knows what the letter writer wants and like consciously like runs roughshod over that. So I feel like there's a lot of good here and, you know, which is not to say that having these conversations will be easy or that, you know, letter writer, your mother is going to hear you say this and say, wow, thank you so much. Now that you've invited me to take a little distance from our relationship, I look forward to you flourishing more. Um, I know she'll 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 take it a little hard at first, but I do think there's real potential here for you to develop a new kind of relationship with your mother that I think you sort of hoped time or distance would do inevitably on your behalf. And now you're just finding, oh, no, we're going to have to do this kind of on purpose with each other. And we're going to have to talk about things. Um, but I think there's a good chance that this will go okay. Uh, again, not like amazing right away, but that you can say these things to her and it's not going to be, mom, I never want to talk to you. I can't stand being around you. You and I have just such wildly incompatible ideas for a relationship that I'd rather we just tried to like have it out in a knife fight. 
I think also the idea of just like being able to say these things outright. I think sometimes in considering them personally, you ask the very questions that actually should be just made explicit in the conversation, which is that this period of change and this idea of the, the adoption, you know, that that's a really major life event. And I think being able to say that maybe outright to say, you know, I know this is an experience that you've had. And with completely understandably that might condition the way that you view our relationship and the way that we were with each other. First of all, I'm not going anywhere in the sense of whether or not I'm present in this relationship, but there are certain challenges that are coming just from life events that are happening. So beginning there and sort of acknowledging that that's the context and then allowing space to say, that doesn't mean that I want to compromise our closeness in terms of how we are emotionally, but just beginning there and saying that outright, I think allows a certain space of comfort and understanding to begin with that then makes the entire conversation probably easier and frankly just better for both involved because there's an honesty there from the beginning. Yeah, I was also curious, I don't want to get too far afield, but I was wondering where the letter writer's father shows up in this because their, their their parents are still married. Mm-hmm. Um and so I was just wondering, like, your mom comes out to visit once a month. Does your dad ever come with her? Does he notice any, like, is he kind of an avoidant guy? Do you have really different relationships with both of them? I don't know if he would potentially be, like, a useful backup or ally um, if you, like, first have the conversation with her and then also kind of let him know that you've had it and see if there's kind of anything he can do to sort of smooth things along. Uh, I really don't know. There's no information here, so... I, I was only guessing, but it definitely, you know, you say letter writer, I know I have to talk to her. And so the question really is just like, how do I start? I think start with the thing that she's been saying lately about buying houses together. That, yeah. that feels yeah. like maybe the most important thing to really start with. Cause that is a, a pretty significant change. And I think I go back and forth between, would it be better to have this conversation during a visit so that you two can like hash it out in person and kind of like read one another's body language and, and you know, provide her with like some comfort and attention before and after? Or given that part of what you need is an increased distance, would it be better to have it over the phone where you don't necessarily have to see her like if she gets really upset or agitated right away? I think there's arguments to be made for both. I think I agree with you. I think it's maybe better... I think it's better to have a phone conversation just to set expectations, so to speak. And then also, if seeing each other in person is such a meaningful experience for her, and it's both of them are sort of situated within that, both visually and just emotionally, it's best to have a bit of distance, I think, from that so that it doesn't condition what that relationship will be. Because to be clear, it seems for all purposes that those visits will still continue. And then they should, you know, in some capacity, they should, whether it's in a lesser extent, maybe, or with less frequency, I think that relationship is still protected somewhat. So I agree with you that maybe it's worth having it separately. And again, making the implicit explicit of saying, it's not because I didn't want to have this in person, it's because I wanted to have a conversation before we continue Mm -hmm. this next stage of it. It's not to be evasive or to, you know, kind of dodge any specific question but I think that that kind of honesty will be very helpful. And I agree with you that the point, the point about the houses is probably something that is worth calling out specifically because it's such a concrete manifestation of this larger issue that seems to be percolating. Right. And, you know, letter writer, you know, I think it's a good idea to say this like lovingly and respectfully, but also really without apology. This is just not something that you need to feel guilty about. I don't want you to kind of encourage her to think of this as something you ought to feel guilty about. I'm a little worried she might push on it. So I really want you to frame this one pretty clearly as, 
I really, really love you. I don't want to live next door at all. And so I just need to let you know that is not something that we're going to do. I don't want to even kind of joke about it. I really love seeing you and dad. And it's also really important to me that we're not neighbors. So I need to say that. I realize that might not be what you were hoping for, but this this kind of like joke or or frequent subject of conversation just felt like we're on different enough pages that I needed to tell you. And again, you know, if she's sad, let her be sad. It can be hard to see your mom get upset and not want to go to comforting her immediately. But this is a very reasonable and appropriate thing to say. And I don't want you to rush to comfort her on that front. And if she wants to make a really big deal out of it, I would encourage kind of an attitude of slightly warm neutrality. You know, of just like, I can see this is really hard for you. I'm sorry about that. And then like, enjoy the silence rather than, oh my gosh, mom, I feel terrible. I should want to live next door to you. That's a, you know, reasonable thing to expect from me. Yeah, I agree. And then, you know, I, I would also say, letter writer, ask yourself these questions like, is it more important to you right now to say you want to have fewer visits? Is it more important that you want to like just separate the way that you handle the visits while she's there? Because again, you say like you've never talked about any of this with her. So you don't have to present this all as just like terrible news, mom. We want opposite things so much as like, I've just kind of like, done whatever for the last eight years, but I actually have some concrete things that I would like during our trip. So maybe one of those is just saying out loud, like I need during our weekend trips to have a little alone time. And I'm going to tell you about that in advance. So you know that about me and you don't have to guess it. Like you can also schedule some time where like maybe she comes out to visit you and you still plan a Saturday afternoon, you know, walk with a friend where you leave her alone for a few hours so that not every visit is she just in your pocket the whole time. And again, you'll know as you kind of think about that either, that sounds okay, I I would be interested in that, or just like, no, I actually want to do just like a visit every three months. That's fine too. But really think about what you would like rather than just saying, I don't like what you've been doing. Offer her, and I would like to do these other things. Like you can frame a lot of this as, I want you to know me better, I have some new kind of like preferences and needs as a slightly more introverted and settled adult than I did as like a kid fresh out of college. And this is one of the ways that you can get to know me better as I am so that we can have a smoother relationship. And again, like I I don't suggest that if you just put the nicest possible spin on it, she's gonna be like, wow, great. I'm not sad at all. Of course, she wants a lot of closeness. You want less closeness. It will still be challenging for her, but it really is true that you're, I think, doing her a service by being more honest uh, in your relationship about what you want rather than just saying, yeah, I want you want what you want. No problem. I completely agree. And I also think I I love the point that you made that this is constructive. You know, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind that these questions are actually really helpful to both of them. I think there's an honesty and an uh, effort to keep preserve something and build it and keep it going. And I think, so it's not like this conversation has to be had with a great deal of worry or apprehension on the surface. You know, I think obviously these are difficult questions to pose, but I agree that having these types of conversations about the fundamental nature of a relationship and how you keep it going and how you sustain it over time as people change is in fact one of the more respectful things you can do with somebody, not just to somebody or for them, but alongside them so that you're both carrying through a certain uh, level of dialogue throughout the experience that you're having. 
Right. So it's not just that like, oh, this is confrontation. This is bad. I've avoided it for as long as I could, but now I can't avoid it any longer. This is also like a good thing. It won't necessarily feel good in the moment, but this is the like eating your broccoli equivalent of having a good relationship with your parents. If you can get to the point where your parents know you well enough that they're like, oh, when we've all been sitting around gapping for six hours, our kid usually at that point like signals like, oh, I got to go be by myself for a little bit. It's not that I don't love you guys. It's just I need to go, you know, decompress. That would be a really, really good thing for them to know about you, I think. And the the longer they know it about you, the more kind of ordinary and and, you know, unsurprising it will seem to them. I think other stuff about like, you know, if she cries when you leave, I get why that's tough, especially if you yourself are feeling kind of relieved. But like, I wouldn't try to do anything about that. I would just like let her have her experience and, and you know, give her a hug and she'll be okay. It's okay to cry. And then, you know, if she insists on scheduling her next visit while she's still there and you really don't want to, I, I think that's going to be one of the places where you have to be a little firmer, where you can just say like, I'm not ready to schedule that right now. I know that that helps you a lot, but like, I need a little more time and, you know, figure out like, figure out a time when you would be up for scheduling. Like you you need to give her something because you love each other and you're in a relationship and you want to see each other once in a while. But like maybe, you know, you want to see each other every few months and maybe next time you'd like to go out to see them. So you might float that as a possibility as well. And, you know, I, the, the last sort of thought I had was when I try to set a subtle boundary by like trying to delay her next visit or not texting her back right away, I, I would encourage you to maybe name those boundaries. So rather than just like not texting her back for a day and hoping she notices, takes the hint and like reciprocates, maybe say, mom, I love you a lot. And usually, you know, I try to text back within a reasonable timeframe when I see a message from you, but I'm not always going to be able to do that. So occasionally uh, a day or so might go by. Obviously I'm not going to be like, you know, ignoring you for days and days on end, but that's going to be something that will happen. And I, I just wanted to let you know that. I just wanted to say that out loud. I think that will make you feel a lot better and less like you're trying to get away with something, like you're sneaking in after curfew. Yeah. And just, you got to start doing it now because if you don't, your mom's going to escalate. And, if, you know, if she's starting now by saying, I can't wait till we're next door neighbors, eventually it's going to be more. And so it doesn't have an end date because your mom thinks things are going great. And that doesn't mean that she won't be able to recover and meet you in the middle, but it is going to take um, some conversations and uh, write us back. I would love to know how this goes because she sounds like a pretty sweet lady who just needs a little bit of encouragement to um, cultivate some other forms of uh, support and friendship outside of her kid. I agree. She sounds wonderful. And I love that this conversation is even happening. So it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I'm really glad that I didn't at some point give in and say like, you should try to find your mom's other kid and like <laughs> stage a big family reunion and that'll solve everyone's problems. Get the balloons and the confetti. Um, yeah. Yes. And I, 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 I also, hope you're ready to get calls every week, <laughs> other kid. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Just have them join the Everybody Loves Raymond Street of people who live near each other. Um, that was that was the image that kept coming into my mind is that, you know, we want to, as, as, as nice as that sounds on TV, it's maybe not something we want in real life. So i'm very excited for our second letter because there's just uh, so much there there um and so whenever you feel up for it will you read it of course so searching for found family i'm in my mid-30s married and estranged from my family 
I realized during the pandemic that all of my friendships were also abusive and toxic and ended them all. My spouse's family is also toxic and he barely speaks to them. Although we have each other, I am longing for the chosen family that the LGBT community talks about. I happen to be bisexual, but not super out, since I'm married to a man and feel like no one takes it seriously anyway. I have some shame around it, but I don't know if it's worth dealing with since I have so many other things to work on. I have a great life, hobbies, a beautiful home, and two dogs, but I want a family in all caps. Kids aren't in our future. I work remotely for a company based in another state. How can I find a chosen family or even just some friends? Support group members are still trying to fix their families, so as someone who is estranged, I couldn't connect. I've got a ton of casual acquaintances from my neighborhood, but it feels like I'm the one making the effort. I keep things cool so as not to overextend myself to those who aren't giving back. I find myself randomly crying about my family of origin, but we were never a family to begin with. Where can I make friends who get me? Where can I fit in? I've tried clubs, synagogues, etc., but I've become more introverted during the pandemic and prefer a drink by the fire. Hearing about everyone else's holiday plans is so painful. I've started casually mentioning that I'm estranged from my family, and it's an interesting sensation. I know this is all over the place, but I hope you'll have some advice regardless. Thank you. So, wow, this really touches upon, I think, a lot of questions people thought about during the pandemic, which is really what community looks like, I think, mm-hmm. and what friendship looks like. And so I, I think so many of us have had this, this it's, a, it's that perennial question, I think, especially when people sit at, hit a certain age, which is, how do you make friends? How do you make friends as an adult? Where does that community really lie? And, uh, you know, I think, first of all, I mean, at least personally from my, my perspective, reader, I think that there's something really important about the fact that you've acknowledged what relationships weren't working for you. I think that's something that people... Oftentimes they look to friendship or they look to forging these adult relationships without having acknowledged that at least. And I think that's part of the process, which is understanding what in your past relationships may not, you personally felt may not have been working for you or may not have been personally very healthy. So I think that that's a constructive place to begin from. I think to set these boundaries, there's a lot of explanation as to what hasn't worked for you. And again, I think that's helpful to note. I think now is really the time to think about what, what are the, traits and pieces of your relationships before that did work? And what are you really looking for? I think this is something that, you know, it's helpful for you to think about both in terms of their platonic relationships and the romantic ones when you're moving Mm -hmm. through something. What actually worked in the past? What are you actually looking for? And if you're actively searching for it and knowing what you're searching for, that will be all the more helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that's really useful. I didn't necessarily get quite a vibe from this letter of like, if you're the common denominator of all this toxicity, you might need to do a little introspection. Mm -hmm. But I do just want to stress, I I know I've said this before, and I think I want to make it a policy that from now on, uh, letter writers, if you use the word toxic in a letter, just replace it with another synonym. Give me another word. I I think at this point, the word toxic now feels vague and open-ended enough that it no longer, uh, unless you were specifically talking about like lead toxicity, pick a different word. Um, (laughs) So I just, you know, I can totally understand, you know, two people who get married who come from like really like difficult, dysfunctional, abusive families. But just that line about like, I realized all my friendships were also abusive and toxic and ended them all. And I'm just, I'm really curious. Like you, you had only abusive friendships. That's pretty significant. And, and I'm wondering, you know, like what helped you realize that? 
at this point, do you have any relationships with anyone aside from your partner that have lasted longer than a few years? Are you doing anything to kind of help you investigate how that might have happened and what you might want to do differently in the future? Like, it just, it, it this feels like that's pretty significant when you've had this many estrangements coming that closely together on one another's heels. Um, I would really encourage you, letter to writer, to like do a little introspection. Obviously, you know, therapy can be helpful on that front. I'm not saying you have to go to therapy before you're allowed to find new friends, but just in terms of like, what do you think might have been going on? What do you think maybe you would like to do differently in the future? How would you like to both like pursue different types of friendships? And also maybe are there other things that you would want to speak up about sooner in a relationship if you notice them in future rather than just like, I got to go down to the friend store and pick up eight new people? Because I, I don't know, I'm a little worried that this letter writer thinks of like, there's all these bad people on this one side and I need to go find good people. Um, and again, obviously if you've encountered a lot of like abusive and, and hurtful relationships that can be real but it's also true that sometimes that doesn't give you all the tools you need to navigate like garden variety conflict with regular people who might have some faults and some positive uh, attributes and and aren't like out to get you but maybe sometimes you need to have conflict with in order to stay friends does that sound reasonable? I don't want to be too hard on this letter no no either. no I understand I also think a worthwhile discussion too would be understanding how their partner, the letter writer, how your partner defines this, you know, for, uh, for lack of a better word, toxicity as well. You know, what, mm-hmm. what, what, what is that experience? Because if you're both coming to the realization that these relationships have not worked for you, where's the commonality there? And if there isn't a commonality, if in fact you define those in different ways, that could be very productive to talk through as well. Because maybe there are experiences that your partners had that you either haven't considered or that are different from yours and then help highlight what maybe wasn't, you know, was working or wasn't working and then apply that to future relationships. Um, I think, again, because you have a kind of parallel experience, it seems that you're going through, it might be helpful to look there and see what lessons either of you has learned that might help the other. Because I I think that there is something that is, a I, I think that's a relatively different situation to be in where you both feel that that's happening concurrently. And again, that might just be because the pandemic made us all go through this period of introspection, but I think there might be some productive discussions to happen there too. Yeah. And so that aside, the kind of question still remains, you know, how do I make new friends? And especially wanting not just to have like a new coffee buddy, but like, I want chosen family. I want like a sitcom Friendsgiving. I want the kind of people who like are always like, hanging out on my porch or like letting themselves in the back door and like they brought me coffee and we have this kind of like whimsical but deeply rooted relationship where we know each other like kin. And I think that's totally understandable. I relate to that. And those kind of relationships also often take time to build. So I think one of the things that you need to remind yourself of is to get to those like found family friendships. You need to spend some time in the getting to know you over coffee stage and that one can feel a little bit more artificial, a little more challenging. You're you're going to, you know, try to get to know some people better and maybe find like, oh, you seem fine, but like I wouldn't live or die for you. And so you're maybe not going to become my new like found cousin or found mom or what have you. So start small and don't necessarily expect to meet like a bosom buddy around every corner, but but like work steadily and slowly on a lot of different fronts. And hopefully you will find those people with time and with increased intimacy and, and, and with shared trust. 
it, it's going to take a while. It, it, it unfortunately does take some time and there's no substitute for that time. Um, I am curious about this like claim that like support group members are still trying to fix their families. Maybe you went to one where that was the case with everyone there, but like that's not true across the board, I think. I agree on that point. And also I would note too, I, I noticed the language around having tried clubs and synagogues. And I think one thing that might be helpful there, you know, obviously I don't know your experience uh, letter writer, but I do think sometimes looking at what those clubs or those focal points were, I think it's important for those to be things that you're really passionate about. I think when people join a club or are in a social situation, then they join it with the idea that it's just a, almost where a critical mass of people are. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they're putting themselves. But I think it should probably be inherently something about which you're really passionate. So if you're if it's a sport that you really love or it's an artistic discipline that you really love or it's a foreign language group or something where it's something that you are really invested in personally because then you're starting with a place where you feel a particular passion. And then when people share that, that's often a common ground that you can really build something from, as opposed to, again, being in a social space where there are simply people there who are gathering because it's a gathering place. So I think pairing those two things together of that enthusiasm and then being around people can always lead to something particularly effective. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, I don't want to read too much into these handful of paragraphs and make a lot of assumptions about the letter writer. But I would really encourage you, letter writer, not to think of this as like a consumer process, like where you just need to go look for people who are going to be just like you and want the things you want, and then you take them off the shelf. A lot of the kind of work of building deep friendships has to do with getting to know someone else on their terms, making overtures to them, doing things that they find meaningful and memorable, in addition to also obviously wanting reciprocation. But, you know, I just worry that if you feel like, all right, I got rid of all these people. I need new people to fill their shoes. I tried a support group, but the people there were doing different stuff than what I was doing. So I wrote that one off, that you're going to experience a lot of frustration if you're just looking for ready-made besties. And again, that doesn't mean you have to go back to that support group and find someone who's like really enmeshed with their family and like get super involved. Just like, okay, maybe you want to look for people who are estranged from their families and don't go back into contact with them. But are there other people at that support group who you thought you might want to get like a drink with or like invite over for a cup of tea by the fire? You know, making an overture and trying to meet somebody halfway and, you know, not to get all like the Francis of Assisi prayer, but like thinking of friendship is <laughs> like want to understand at least as much as, if not more than you want to be understood um, and want to, you know, reach out to people as much as you hope they reach out to you. Because if you just kind of wait for somebody who feels like a soulmate and then just like invites you over and instantly wants to do all the stuff you want to do, I think you will be disappointed often. Yep. And so I think that even goes into, it feels like I'm the one making the effort. Again, obviously look for people who do reciprocate your interest and your time, but you are the person who is looking for a found family right now. So you probably will always be the one who is making the effort because you want something and you're pursuing it. So don't think of it as like something's wrong. These people must not really like me if they're not making an effort. You're the one who's trying to make something happen. So the effort should be coming from you. Again, if you invite someone over like 90 times and you really like them, but they ignore you the second they leave your house, you can feel free to move on from that friendship. But um, yeah, you, you, you do need to make a lot of this effort. And again, it also makes a ton of sense to me that you find yourself crying about your family of origin, 
even though there was never really that time when things worked. That just makes sense. That's still painful. That's still the environment you had to grow up in. So I, I just, I really want to encourage you, letter writer, to let yourself have those feelings and don't, don't, don't be hard on yourself on that front. Like that's, that's totally understandable. I would also add that those, those nights by the fire, you know, are, have their own importance. And in fact, you know, people will leave your house, your friends will leave and you're still have yourself. And so you have to be, protect that space and enjoy that as much as you can and have it complement that experience with other people. There is something lovely about knowing that about yourself, that you like that time protected for yourself and that you like to spend it in that way. And so I think it's a give and take between the two of them. And in fact, one is informing the other. So I think, Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, they're complementary towards each other. So I think knowing yourself and knowing what that you have, that space you can always go back to, only helps you understand what you want those other relationships to be when you're actually engaging with people. Yeah. And then, you know, just as always, I think it's a good idea if you find yourself making kind of blanket statements about the LGBT community as if there was just one. It's sometimes useful to like, you know, stop and sort of like it can be useful to replace toxic with a synonym, like replace it with the name of like a gay person, you know, and then be like, all right, is this actually true of everyone in the community? Or is this just sort of an idea I have? So like, there's lots of people in the LGBT community who don't have chosen family or who feel isolated or who don't have a lot of close friends. It's not like everybody there is just like blissfully happy to be estranged from their family and constantly having like a a rich network of like beloved friends of 20 plus years coming in and out with like beautiful meals and like handmade garments and like wonderful stories about their like nightclub acts or what have you. (laughs) Um, And so even like, because I feel like that leans into like, you know, I feel like no one takes it seriously anyway. Do you mean that like you've tried to make a lot of queer friends and all of them have said, I find you boring because you're married to a man and I don't take that seriously? Or are you afraid that that's what's going to happen? Do you tend to assume that if that would happen, that you would, like, I, I feel like if that was happening to you a lot, you would have said it. And so instead, this kind of feels like something you're worried about and then you're trying to blame the, like, gay community for. And going in it with a chip on your shoulder is not a good way to make friends. And also, like, don't put your fears on other people. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, and that is that is a fear. It's an understandable fear, but I think you're right that it's almost constructing a problem that might not exist. So it's more, and that's, frankly, you could argue probably the least conducive to con- cultivating a friendship is beginning at that part of those assumptions and assuming that things might be a bit more dire than they are. So I think approaching it with the uh, spirit of collaboration and the idea of seeking things that will be restorative is a better place to begin having that discussion about friendship itself. Right. And like, maybe you will find or encounter some gay people who are dismissive of you as a bisexual married woman. Those are not going to be your friends. Move on and look for people who are interested in you and don't, you know, find your marriage like a point against you. Um, maybe consider befriending other bisexual married women. They they have some organizations. They sometimes get together. They're sometimes like particular support groups for them at like various LGBT centers. There's definitely lots of communities for such women online um, that you can sometimes turn into real life meetups. Um, maybe make that your first port of call. And you can also like befriend lots of other different kinds of queer people. But that might be a place where you feel a little bit more at ease and where a lot of people are like, oh, I, I run into a similar problem too. And you can kind of help each other out and invite them over for a drink by the fire. Don't try to, you know, go hiking with everyone if what you really want is to sit down and relax because that way lies madness. 
Do you have like a perfect, rich, chosen family? It's actually making me think a great deal about how when people talk about this very question, I mean, I, you know, it's funny, I think about the pandemic a lot in this regard, which is I think some people saw the pandemic as being a disruption of their natural state. And some mm-hmm. people saw it as a time of a, a kind of schism that was going to make them reevaluate what they prioritize. And for me, personally, I've always seen the latter categories being the more productive, frankly, because it's like acknowledging that this was a period of great tumult and that it helps you redefine which relationships really seem to be healthy and allowing you the space you need to be yourself. So I think that like, thankfully, I have that in a lot of respects too, but it's also, I think for many of us, just cut out some of the BS where we're sort of like, who does or does not actually have that larger kind of sense of community in mind. So I don't know, it's 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 difficult. I think... I think it's worth acknowledging in this context, too, that this is by no means a single experience. I think a lot of people, most adults, have this experience of feeling like they haven't connected with people past a certain age you know, of their lives. So many of them think, okay, maybe it was when I was in college or then when I was in my first job and we had a sense of camaraderie of being in the trenches and then things kind of ebbed from that point on. Whereas people got married and people had families. So I think it's a common issue that people bring up. So there's, it's not like it's uh, you know one specific person who's having that, but I think that it's just the nature again of adulthood. I think that that's, that's something that it, it shifts and it changes. And I think what we find is that the more we ask the questions about how we identify and that with the way, the way we value those healthy relationships, then it helps you understand that it is that kind of old adage of like quality over quantity. You know, you'll find people with whom you really share those values And that becomes where you do your, that's where most of your personal growth happens. At least that's what I think. Yeah, I I think that's very much it. And I think this is, obviously, I think we've sort of addressed that particular letter as much as we are are going to. Uh, And I'm just thinking more broadly about the subject of friendship. But I think one thing that I sort of related to in the letter writer is I often have in my life run into an issue where I both really want to set a lot of the terms of my friendships. Like mm. I want to come up with the ideas. If I want to sit by the fire, I want to, I want it to be my place. I want to see friends on my terms. And then I can also sometimes get really um, in my feelings about whether or not I'm making all the effort. And it's like, well, you can't quite have it both ways. Like either I want to have everyone come over to my house and leave when I want them to and do what I say, or I want a lot of like reciprocity back and forth compromise And I'm kind of trying to make an impossibility possible by demanding like the best of both worlds and none of the worst of either. Um, And so sometimes in my own life, I have, I I think we all have different expectations about idealized friendships that sometimes get in the way of our ability to pursue the friendships that we do have. And that's definitely one of mine is I want control and reciprocity in equal measure, even when those things are incompatible with each other. Yeah, I I agree. And I think also it's, it's completely reconditioned how we think about how we spend time with ourselves because we were almost forced to for a period for a period of time there. So we don't we there's great value in that too. So again, it goes back to what I was saying, which is that negotiation you make between how you want to be with the time that you have to yourself. And sometimes it really comes down to we idealize the friendship because we think it's something we should have and we think it's an effort we should be making to step outside. But sometimes you're just not in that mode either. You know, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. it's not somewhere you have to put yourself if you don't feel like you're comfortable being in that space. But in the long run, if this is something that you want and you want these relationships, then you have to think about where that fits in your overall kind of social map. Yeah, I think hugely, hugely so. And yeah, just the the question of finding friends is a complicated one. And I think that even more 
sometimes than we do with romantic relationships. It's sometimes easy for people to think a friend is someone who I never have to have a difficult conversation mm, with. Yes. We will always experience like total unanimity of feeling. We want the same things. We don't want the same things. We'll just always be able to, at most, we have to drop a hint and the other will pick up on it. It's like, oh, I think sometimes you actually do have to have those conversations with a friend. You know, the example I'll give you is that, and I won't name any names here, but years ago I worked with, uh, I was the assistant with a kind of well-known author. And it's funny, my boss at the time had said something to me of, you know, so-and-so is a really nice person until, you know, things get a little difficult in a situation and then, you know, you might see their bad side come out. And I thought, well, that's actually... (laughs) That's the definition of somebody who's kind of a jerk. Like, like when things are great and perfect, you know, you'll see probably the best of most people. But when things get a little iffy, that's when it becomes a, a kind of discussion of how you handle that level of stress or anxiety or relationships with other people. So I completely right. agree with you that with the nature of friendship, it should be by no means somebody with whom you never have conflict. In fact, probably some of the best friendships you'll have are with people where you may have some of that friction, but the way that you process it and discuss it and figure out where you stand and either come to a place of understanding or resolve the conflict because you understand there's an understanding you can both live with and that you it just makes you grow closer. That's really where some of the most productive discussions around any relationship happens, but almost, almost to a greater extent friendship because mm-hmm. there's a vulnerability you have to accept there. And it goes back to that old kind of thought that your friends take you sort of warts and all. And so part of that is being able to have these difficult discussions and to persist through these initial um, roadblocks that that you think are kind of insurmountable, but in fact, will probably get you somewhere a lot farther in the long run. That's so, so, I think that's really useful. Rakesh, thank you so, so much for giving wonderful advice and reminding me of um, Kylie Minogue's weird hat in the 80s. <laughs> Anytime I can. But thank you so much for having me, Danny. I'm, you're just a gem. And I, I really, I learn so much from you every time I listen to this, this show. So it's a thrill to be here. Right back at you. Have a fabulous rest of your day. You too. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with a guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Sure, maybe some of this is like mental health related. Maybe some of this is like drug abuse. But a lot of this just sounds like he's a fucking asshole. And I think, if anything, trying to like wrap this all up as like a quote unquote mental health challenge really glosses over some pretty important distinctions. And that's not to say that there aren't mental health issues you can have that can contribute to behaving like an asshole. There absolutely are. But I think that 
if anything, it's like it's a little it's a little too easy on him to say like, oh, this is just a mental health challenge. If he could only get treatment, he would suddenly be like a really good boss. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.